Good morning. How are y'all today? Y'all doing okay? All right. Daniel, are we on? There we go. Okay. Good. It is great to be leading up into the week of Thanksgiving and rejoicing together. We had a great week this past week with the pastor's conference here on Sunday evening and Monday morning and then a good time at the Louisiana Baptist Convention. I thank the Lord for all the workers and the labor that goes on in that. And I rejoice in that. When I was uh, preparing for today, the Lord was letting me reflect on some things from my childhood. And I want to share a bit with you today. I do want to mention uh, two things, three things real quickly. Uh, I was reminded there is food tonight afterwards at First Baptist. So that is a confirmation. So if that was keeping you on the bubble about going, it shouldn't have been, but if it was keeping you on the bubble about going, we just kind of bumped you into the yes category. We do really value the time together to bring our churches together, to associate, to fellowship, and even to heal things that have occurred in the past. And we believe the Lord led our church to encourage that as a result of our time together and experiencing God. And we want you to make a commitment to be there tonight and to rejoice with First Baptist of Pineville and Philadelphia of DeVille and to come together and worship our Lord in unity and a beautiful picture to our community of the great joy and love and grace of Jesus that we worship together in. Second, I wanted to mention... Something that we might not have been able to get out to you, but Miss Shirley Decody passed away this past, uh, a little over a week ago, and they're having a memorial service for her uh, on uh, tomorrow at 1 o'clock. And so would love for you to come out and encourage their family. It'll be here at the church. I think that it's probably posted in uh, the online obituaries as well. But come out and encourage Joe and their family and give honor to Miss Shirley and her passing. And one other thing this week, with it being Thanksgiving, no Wednesday evening services. So we want you to spend time together with your family and rejoice and be able to make those preparations together. So we hope that you'll enjoy that. When I was just a boy, God began doing the work in me that is promised in the book of John. Jesus said that he was going to send forth the Spirit. And the Spirit was going to do a specific work. He was going to convict people of sin, of righteousness, and of the judgment to come. Well, thankfully, I grew up in a gospel-teaching family and a gospel-preaching church. And so, through the proclamation of God's Word and through the urgency that was in the congregation that I was a part of, there was a a gospel urgency and the work of the Spirit was happening in my heart very young and I became extremely aware of sin and I became aware that I liked sin and that I liked to sin and even as a young boy I knew something was seriously wrong with that. I also came to understand that Jesus, that God, that the Holy Spirit are a righteous being, perfectly holy and righteous, and that my sinful self 
even in my young understanding, had great fear in standing before a holy and righteous God and giving an account of my life. But added into that mix was that third part of the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is fear of the judgment to come. That every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, everyone is going to stand before God as sinners in the presence of righteousness. And there is going to be a time where everyone gives an account of their soul, an account for their lives. And so that work was working in me deeply and it was so troubling that I wept every time the church service started to draw to a close. I wept for almost three months as hymns would be sung, just as I am, without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me. Those Hymns of invitation sort of layered upon my sense of sinfulness, my lack of righteousness in front of a holy God, and an impending judgment that I would stand in the presence of. And my heart was broken. And I would just weep. My mom began to be worried about me because it just kept happening. It was like clockwork. It seems as if there was a chord struck on the piano and the tears just began to roll. And so my mom went to a very godly senior adult in our church. Her name was Miss Lucille Clay. And she's been with Jesus a long time now. But my mom went to her and she said, Miss Lucille, something's wrong with Bart. And Miss Lucille earnestly looked at my mom, and my mom recounted this to me years later. She said, oh no, there's nothing wrong. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And don't interfere with that. Let it be. And so, time and time again, I wrestled with it, and I came to realize that there was a place, a way of relief and release for all of that fear and all of that sorrow that was building up. And as it was building up and as it was rising in my heart, it came to a crescendo one day. During the service, we had a revival, and uh, I have no idea what the pastor who spoke said, but I remember that there was just this moment of saying yes to Jesus. And I hopped up out of my seat and I bolted down the aisle of the church, bypassed the preacher. I didn't need him. I wasn't looking for a preacher. I was coming to Jesus. And I did. I just literally fell on my knees as a little boy. And I don't even remember what I said. In fact, it makes me mad when some revival preacher comes in and says some foolish thing like, if you don't remember what you prayed and exactly what you asked God, then you're only 99% saved. And to be 99% saved is to be 100% lost. That's foolishness. But here's what I do know. I know that the words of a hymn became true in my heart. It's hymn 438. 
We roll on out to that hymn. It's after the first several points. By the way, if you don't know, these folks who run the sound and media around here have a whole lot of work to do, and you have no idea what goes on behind the scenes. Uh, and so I just want to give a shout out to them. Everybody clap for them, because they're all awesome. And I'm really thankful. This is what came true. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day. Day I will never forget. After I'd wandered in darkness away, Jesus my Savior I met. That's what happened. Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend. He met the needs of my heart, shadows dispelling with joy. I'm telling, He made all the darkness depart. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. I had an instantaneous joy. It was inexplicable because I sensed for the first time that I was clean. I sensed for the first time I was free. I sensed for the first time I was saved. And it was incredible. But let me tell you something very important. I believe that from that day through this very day that the world, my flesh, and the devil have worked 24-7 to steal that joy. And I believe that that's part of the great struggle of true Christians. Because the greatest witness you have is not the recounting of a past event, but it is the possession of a present joy. It is that this very day, this is still true. Even when I don't feel like it. And so what I want to do today is I want to camp in the book of Philippians. I want to tell you five truths. I want to use those truths to launch you into Thanksgiving. Both today, thanking God, and Thanksgiving Day. Really being able to sing this song with the saints of old that we have the delight that heaven has come down. How did heaven come down? Well, it tells us in Philippians 2 that even though He existed in the form of God, Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself, taking on the form of a man, a bondservant, humbling Himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. Heaven really did come down. And He showed up then... And He still shows up today. And He showed up in my heart as a little boy. And that joy that I had that day is a joy that I have had a responsibility to work at maintaining. Because my flesh is always struggling with it. The world is always trying to get me to find my joy in something else. And the last thing that Jesus ever, I mean, that the devil ever wants me to be about Jesus is joyful. That's why the devil camps in grumpiness. He loves it. 
We're going to talk a little bit about what role that plays. So let's jump in. Number one, here we are. Christian joy has a premise. There is a foundation. There's a ground we stand on. There's a premise to our joy. And Paul gives that in Philippians 2. He reminds us of it in verse 1. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, Christ is the encourager for the discouraged. How? Well, through this, if there is any consolation of love. That's the second part of verse 1. What does that mean? He loves you. There's no greater truth that you can ever know than to know that Jesus really, genuinely, deeply, and with His life, loves you. That's the most encouraging thing you'll ever hear. And it will become mighty important when you stand in front of Him to be assured by the fact that He loves you. But He says further, there is fellowship of the Spirit. That means you're never lonely as a believer because God is with you. His own Spirit is in you. He will never leave you. He cannot forsake you. He does not lie. And so He is always your company. He says further, if there's any affection, that's that tender, caring love and compassion that's His interest in you. This is very interesting because it's all set up by the word, in Christ. Don't want you to think with me, because I think the structure of Philippians has some clues about what it's doing. Because I want to bracket off from 2-1 to 4-7. Okay, I want you to bracket that off. Because in 2-1 it says, these things are in Christ... And then in 4-7, it kind of closes the brackets by saying, these things are in Christ. So there's sort of a package right here that I want to line out for you today that starts with the premise of your joy. The premise of your joy is Jesus. It is Jesus' love. It is Jesus' encouragement. It is Jesus' compassion. Jesus' affection. Jesus' fellowship with you through the person of the Holy Spirit abiding in you and walking with you at all times. So when I think through that hymn, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day. The joy of that day is the joy of salvation. And that joy is an abiding joy because Jesus never leaves. He never forsakes. He never changes gears on us. He abides with us still. This is very important because if this part's not right, every other kind of seeking of joy, every other pursuit of happiness is what Solomon called chasing after the wind. To try to obtain joy and happiness. And I really more focus on joy because I think happiness is much more in its meaning situational. But to Seek for lasting joy in anything other than Jesus is to chase after the wind 
And it is to live for vanity. And I think it's why Solomon, after chasing it that way, said this, So I hated life. You ever been there? Are you able to admit that you've ever been there? I've been there. I've gotten caught up in chasing things that are vain. And the more I chased them, the more I hated existence. The more I hated life. And the less joy I knew. And so Christ Himself is the premise, the foundation, the fountain we described last week of joy. And when this event happened in my life and heaven came down and glory filled my soul, It was fundamentally life-changing, life-transforming, freeing, joy-filling. And it was something that absolutely radically changed my outlook and my fears. But let me layer it with the second part here. And we might come back to more of that hymn in a little bit. Number two, Christian joy is the resolution of a problem. When we read Philippians 2 one through that last part there in four nine or four eight, Paul is trying to convince the Philippians to have the kind of joy he has in Christ. But he says something really strange in the middle of a passage preaching joy. Let me show you that strange passage. Look in verse twelve of Philippians two. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed... Now, remember that he is using obedience as a point of joy, like we sing, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. So Paul's using it that way. He's saying, so then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Then he says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So you think, if this guy's trying to give me joy, he just kind of blew it. Because now he's saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now that's very serious. Fear and trembling means that you are deeply, down in the soul, fearful, about something. So you're thinking, uh, how can this be injected into the middle of this passage that's trying to get me to have joy? Uh, how can it lead up to Paul's command in chapter 4, verse 6, Rejoice in the Lord always! And again I say rejoice. How can I rejoice if I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling? Well, here's how. What Paul wanted to do is make sure that you know what the real problem is. If you don't know what the real problem is, you'll never solve all the other problems. The real problem is this. That if you are not a Christian, you are on a path to an eternal hell from which there is no escape, no release, and no relief. That's your real problem. As a sinful being, you have offended a holy God in such a way that you have deservedly obtained 
a condemnation to be placed in an eternal inferno wherein there is no escape. Paul wants to make sure that you know what your real problem is. We were getting ready for Ecuador this year and I went through my normal packing stress. I'm not good at packing. I'm better than David Huffman. Are you here, David? Rita was clapping. She just started doing this as soon as I said that. I'm just really not not good at packing. And, and so I stress over it. And here's one of my crazy stresses, okay? Um, I have a lot of clothes that I've kind of built up over the years that I use for mission trips. And those clothes I kind of keep set aside because they're kind of built for jungle wear. They are those wicking kind of shirts and wicking kind of pants and the, the undergarments are the same kind of things and they're kind of good stuff. I've got particular socks that I wear and it just makes the trip a little more comfortable. But um, when I get all those things out and Sherry just keeps them so well organized for me and I get them all out and I lay them on my, my bed, okay? And then I start doing this thing. I start trying to match them. Okay? And I'm not any good at that. I'm just not good at what goes with what. And so I'm starting to stress over something really stupid. But I'm stressing over it. So I'm having trouble getting finished. And packing this part takes like five times longer than it ought to. Somebody like Sherry would walk in there and go, bap, 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 done. But I'm in there going, I don't know if that goes with that. Like it matters. But it's a weird thing. And I know you're thinking, he's really vain. I I probably am. But I'm thinking about this. And in the jungle, I'm telling you, it doesn't matter. By the middle of the day, it really doesn't matter. And so, But I'm stressing over it, and it's really weird. And I hate it. And so I finally get it all packed. And even then, after I get it all packed, we use these two-gallon Ziploc bags and we kind of seal the thing up with a whole outfit in it. So after it's dirty, you can put it back in there and it doesn't infect the rest of your clothes. And, and so I, I'm getting this ready. Okay, and it just seems important. And I stress over and I spend... Listen, I end up spending a couple of days on something that for some people is like a... Well, for David Upman, it's like seven minutes. Okay? And so... And so it's really, it's stupid. It really is. Okay. I think while that's going on that that's a problem. And I get caught up in it. But every now and then, here's what God does. He reminds you that there are some problems that really are problems. We're sitting one night in Bible study. We're in the community of Chihuahua that we've been ministering all these years. Gary Wester and I are sitting there teaching. We've got the Satchila around us and we've got the missionary team that's with us there. And it's all, we're sitting there and man, we're just laying out this great Bible story that we think is really good. And all of a sudden, all the people start looking really animated. And I'm thinking, hey, we must have made a good point. We must have, I must, you know, I'm on now, man, because the people are like, And then we realize that out of the ceiling, a poisonous snake just dropped and landed about two and a half or three feet from Gary. They're not animated about our teaching. In fact, they really don't care what we're saying right now. They're all looking at this snake that just dropped out of the roof right beside us. Completely deadly snake. Bad snake. And so all of a sudden, whether my clothes matched or not really didn't matter. I didn't get up and say, I wonder if this goes together with the snake. 
You know, is this going to work out all right? You think he would? My, no. All of a sudden, you go into a whole other mode, a survival mode. You go into a reaction mode of, hey, there's danger going on here. This is serious. Now, listen carefully. Hear what Paul's doing. Paul, when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he just dropped the serpent right into your view. And that serpent wants to kill you. He is the serpent of old. He is the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. He is the devil. And his design and his delight and his desire is your destruction. And so Paul said, you have been confronted with the reality of something way more important than your personal appearance. Or whether your friends like you. Or whether you're going to get that job or graduate from school. You've just been confronted with the fact that there is an enemy that is warring for your soul, desires your demise, and he is laboring night and day for it, and you are on the brink of eternity. And if you do not leave your sin and repent and turn to Jesus, those little things you've been stressing over, you're going to think how stupid those are when you stand in the presence of Almighty God condemned to hell because of your actions and behavior and your lack of turning to Christ in faith. And so the Apostle Paul drops that into the middle of his joy thing. Why? Because this is resolvable. Look, I don't know if I'll ever resolve whether or not my outfits really match because that's a matter of taste. And I can labor at it all the time, but I'll probably never be real comfortable about it. Because I just can't get settled about it. Does that go with that? Right now, I don't know if this goes together. I just put it on today. Okay? And if you've been kind of watching my wardrobe lately, you know, so I wear dark pants, you can ask me about that later. Listen. Paul drops this in here. To get the superficiality of all of the stupid stuff we're worrying about off of the table and get this one thing right up in front of you. Your eternity. You better have some knocking knees about resolving this one problem. This is your problem. And so Paul drops it in there. Why? Because it's resolvable. That's the whole beauty of the gospel. You see, when I was six years old, seven years old, I was wrestling through the fact that I knew that I was a sinner. You say, that's mighty young. Well, a gospel family can impart some truths really early. I was struggling with those things, but when I figured out that Jesus was the resolution, man, that stuff just washed off of me. It was amazing. It was glorious. It was joyful. I remember after I came to the Lord and I was saved, I remember standing by a teenager. I was a little bitty guy. I remember standing by a teenager that was a friend of my brother. She was standing, she was crying. I just looked at her and I said, look, you can go down there and talk to that guy and he can help you get this thing solved because I did that for a while. And you know what she did? She got, she went straight down to the preacher and she got it resolved. She got saved that day. She was going through the same thing I was. She was a teenager. I had been a child, but I was able to just tell her, hey, you can get this resolved. Christian joy is the resolution of a problem. Where does that resolution come? Back up just a few verses in chapter 2. 
What does he say there? Verse 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What is he saying there? He's saying, your issue with God has been resolved if you'll trust Jesus. Your one big fear and trembling issue that you need to work out has been resolved in Jesus. So that's just where you need to go. You need to turn to Jesus. Christian joy is the knowledge that my problem is solved. Listen, when that snake fell out of that roof, we had a problem. We could have phoned up and said, Houston, we have a problem. Because that snake was hitting that dirt floor and he was making the way. Now I want you to think for just a minute, how many of our girls would have slept if that snake would have slithered out of that meeting area and headed toward their hut and been lost on his way to their hut and we would have never found him in the hut. Liz, would y'all have slept at all? No. Y'all wouldn't have slept. Any of you girls that were in that hut, would y'all have slept? Chloe? No. You wouldn't have slept. Why? Because there would have been a snake loose... Do you know what? Your scaredy cat preacher got up. The guy who's afraid to get on the airplane. And I walked right over and just in a reaction just put my foot on the head of that snake and cut his head off. Don't go, oh, he's something. I did that without thinking. Okay. But I saw the Satula, I saw our people, I saw our girls, I saw our missionary there, and I thought I'd better protect Gary. He's way tougher than me. And I killed that snake. Let me tell you something. If you have not experienced Jesus killing the snake on your behalf, He's probably slithering towards your house right now. And He means trouble. And you'll never have any peace till you get this one thing settled. You better work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because what is on the line is heaven and hell. And what is at stake? It's unrecoverable. And so this is a problem that can be resolved and you can resolve it today. Look how it works out. Number three. How does it work out? Christian joy rests in a promise. This is where the word sovereignty is woven into our message today. Look at what's happening in verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I want you to think that through. The only way you can have joy is to know that God's in control. You you, You need to know that God's in control in your health right now. If your health is declining, God still loves you and He's still in control. If you have a relationship that's melting down, I want you to know God is on His throne and He is still working for your good. Romans 8.28 will for always and forever be true. What does it say? It says God works all things together for good. For those who love Him, for those who are the called according to His purpose. God is the only one who can turn evil into good. What do you mean? Was the cross an evil act? You better believe it was the most evil thing that's ever been done in the entire universe, in the entire history of eternity, was when men killed Jesus. There's never been a more evil act that's ever been carried out in all of eternity. And it was the greatest good that could ever be. And if God can turn the cross into the greatest good, whatever you're going through, God can turn for good. Whatever. Whatever. He has that power.
And he wants to exert it. What's he doing? He's at work in you. This is a promise. God is at work in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. If you are a child of God, I want you to know that He is working as the great, loving, adoptive parent. Jesus is working as the great, loving, adopted brother. And they are operating right now for your good. You know what Jesus is doing on your behalf right now? He's interceding for you. You're sitting here with some nasty thoughts, vile thoughts, broken thoughts, hurting thoughts, running through your mind right in the middle of church, and Jesus is talking to God the Father saying, I paid for those thoughts. I paid for those fears. I paid for those weaknesses. I paid for those struggles. I paid for those anxieties. I paid for those doubts. I took care of them, Dad. I took care of them all at the cross. Help them through it. He's interceding on your behalf right now with the Father. Isn't that great to know that He can handle all of us at once, just this church, but He's doing the whole world at the same time? That's pretty awesome. He is sovereignly working from His throne, and that is a promise. Our joy rests in this promise. God is good, and God does good. If you cannot settle that, you cannot have permanent joy. Because without that, every time you meet difficulty, you'll wonder, is God good? Does He love me? Does He care? But if you will rest that in all things you are to give thanks, because this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, because God is sovereignly working over all that stuff right now. It's so good. I've got a motor on, because I want to give you some things to kind of apply. So here we go to number four. Christian joy has a process. Now, if I am telling you the truth, and I think I am, that from the moment of my salvation, the world, the flesh, and the devil are working really hard to steal my joy. My flesh is always wanting to be grumpy. My flesh is always wanting to be selfish. My flesh is always wanting to have its own way. And I found out a long time ago, I don't always get my way, and as a result, my flesh gets really grumpy. I get grumpy with people. I get grumpy with situations. I get grumpy about all kinds of things. And so my flesh is battling my joy all the time. The world's battling my joy. It constantly throws commercials and things at me that says, oh, chase this, go after this, do this, be free like this. There's always this assault from the world. The devil, he's just laboring because he hates me and he doesn't want me to be joyful in Jesus. And so he's always working temptation angles and disappointment angles and always trying to depress me. And so what's going on is there is a process for me to have joy. If I will not enter the process, I will not guard my joy. So I want to teach you something here that's really important. I want you to, to, to track together two passages of Scripture. Go down to verse 14 of chapter 2. Put your finger on it. Got your finger on it? Go ahead. If you got an iPhone, you can put it on there, it'll highlight it. Alright? Or Android phone or if Bill Mount was here I'd make fun of his phone because he's got a he's got a phone that's so old you flip it open and you say, Sarah, get me two four three. You'll only know that if you watch Andy Griffith. Okay. Here we go. Lynn Philpot told me that joke, by the way. Do all things without what? Or Do all things with... How many things? Oh, here's one of the processes of joy. If you want to have joy, you need to shut up. Did I say that? I'm talking to me first, okay? Because I have to... 
listen, I got scars on my tongue, okay? You know what I'm talking about? From biting my tongue? Do all things. How many things? All things without grumbling and disputing. Listen, I want to tell you a secret. We will never grow a congregation here grumbling about what we have. The only congregation I can find in the Bible that ever grew through grumbling was Korah's. So who is Korah? He's the guy that led the congregation and the earth opened up and swallowed them. Because what were they doing? He grew the congregation through grumbling. That's not how we do it. And so what's happening here? Do how many things without grumbling or disputing? All. But now, Paul doesn't leave it there because it's not just about being able to shut up at the right time. It's also about being able to speak up at the right time. What does he say? Go over to chapter 4. Now put your finger on verse 6. Be anxious for nothing but in all things or everything. Same word in both places. So what is he saying? This is awesome. I want to give you a quote. As thanksgiving is both the food and fruit of joy, so is grumbling the food and fruit of anxiety. Please hear this. As thanksgiving is both the food and fruit of joy. How is it the food and fruit of joy? Well, it's the food of joy because I'm going to feed on chapter 2, verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ. You know, the most encouraging thing I know is that Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. If there is any consolation of love, I know that Jesus loves me unconditionally and unchangeably so that right now He's interceding for me. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, when I am the loneliest, when I am the most feeling rejected, God is right there with me, sitting in me by His Spirit, sitting by by me in His Spirit, and He never leaves or forsakes me. If there is any affection, Jesus is like a shepherd leading His sheep. And the Bible says that He loves us so much that when we go off and stray, He leaves the 99, He comes after the one, and He picks them up, and He puts them on His shoulders. If there's not some affection there, you're just not ever going to find it. That Jesus loves you enough to put you around His shoulders and tote you home. That's affection. If there's any compassion. He's compassionate that He'll keep looking for us even when we're straying. That feeds my soul. And I'm thankful for it. And if it will be the food... What does He say here? Watch. Watch what He says. Verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. It is the food and fruit of joy. But grumbling is the food and fruit of anxiety. What does that mean? When you start grumbling, you start feeding your anxiety. And the more your anxiety grows, the more you grumble. And it becomes a self-feeding thing. And what you'll find is, the grumpier you are, the grumpier you'll get. And you can't shut that down without first knowing what to shut up and what to speak up. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So there is a process. 
I could dig deep into this and I'll do so later. But the process has to entail all things. All things. That means your conflicts, your disappointments, your hurts, your pains, your sorrows, your illnesses, your sicknesses, your disabilities, your weaknesses. All things. No grumbling. But in all things, praying with thanksgiving. Let your requests... So there's a process. If I want to guard my joy, I've got to feed it. Thanksgiving feeds it and is the fruit of it. If I want to keep anxiety out of my life, what do I have to do? I have to feed my heart with thanksgiving so that my joy will grow and it will produce the fruit of thanksgiving. My dad said something really important one time. This was the philosophy of Buddy Walker. Here's the philosophy. Son, don't feed that dog. He's liable to take up here. And that's country talk. Son, don't feed that dog. He's liable to take up here. Listen to me about your anxiety and about your grumbling. If you feed that dog, he will take up in your heart. And he'll stay. And he'll demand to eat all day, every day. And he will gnaw at the goodness of your salvation until you become a joyless, frail representative of what you once were in Christ. Thanksgiving is the food and the fruit of Christian joy. Let's close it. Christian joy enjoys progress. I love this. It is so good to me. And I found it to be true. What is the progress? Well, if I do all things without grumbling and disputing, if I choose that, if I know when to shut up, and if I in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let my request be made known to God, something is going to progress in my heart. Look at the progress. Verse 7 of chapter 4. Take this home. This is so good. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, that means it doesn't make sense. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, is going to do two things. Now look at what it does. It's going to guard your hearts and your minds. Where? Where? In Christ Jesus, just like we started in chapter 2, verse 1. In Christ Jesus. But look at the two places He's setting up guard. The heart is the place where your feelings are hiding. And you need a guard over it. Because anxiety wants to open the door of your heart to really cruddy feelings. That's what it wants to do. Anxiety wants to open the door of your heart to cruddy feelings. So that your heart becomes a storehouse of cruddy feelings. And then your mouth will become an outhouse of cruddy feelings. That's what happens. God wants to set up a guard on your heart because He cares how you feel. Did you know that? This is the compassion of Jesus to bind up the brokenhearted. This is the compassion of Jesus to come to the lost, to the sinner, to the stray. This is it. 
He cares how you feel. And so what Jesus wants to do is He wants you He wants you to open up the door of your heart, not with anxiety, not with grumbling. He wants you to open up the door of your heart with thanksgiving and just begin to flow out and to let Jesus come into your dirty heart like I need Him in my dirty heart and to work and to bring joy and to overcome all of those feelings, those things that wrestle up in the night, those things that build up over time, those broken friendships, broken relationships, those hurts, those things. Jesus wants to come and fix all this stuff. But He does it through thanksgiving. But notice, it's not just our hearts. If you're like me, your issue isn't just some feelings, it's some thinkings. What does He say? Guard your hearts and your what? Minds. Jesus is also interested in helping you know how to think. Because the truth is, most of us have destructive thought processes. Paranoias. Fears. Anxieties. Most of us have those things. They're destructive processes. That's why the Bible says we ought to take every thought captive to Christ. Because we're not really good thinkers. That's why when you're in the grocery store line, the magazines in that line are not uplifting. Why? Because your mind would not easily be drawn to uplifting. You would, you would ignore it if it was uplifting. But when it starts telling that a two-headed Elvis clone space baby just landed in San Francisco, you go, really? I didn't see that on CNN. Fox didn't cover it. I better get that. Why? Because we're broken. And we're drawn to darkness. But Jesus doesn't want to just guard your feelings. Because He knows that feelings are the products of thoughts. So He wants to guard your mind. How does He guard my mind when I do this? I get on my knees and I am anxious for nothing and I shut my mouth about the grumbling and I embrace Him and I say, Dear God in heaven, I am coming to You on my knees and I'm bringing everything of my anxieties to You and I'm going to practice. Be anxious for nothing, Bart, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, I'm going to let my request be made known to God. And oh God, I need your peace. Because my heart is dirty. It's dark and it's drawn to the darkness. And my mind is full of thoughts. Help me, Jesus. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If every one of us would get on our knees like that today, God would rattle this church. And it would radically change our Thanksgiving celebration. Would you bow with me? Is it possible that the primary thing you're here for today is the one thing right in the middle of the sermon, where you need this one big problem solved. You've been worrying about window dressing and how all the things of appearance are going down like me packing. And you're worrying about stuff that eternally just doesn't matter. You're worried about things you can't change, you can't fix, it can't be resolved. But here's one thing that can be fixed. Your relationship with God can be fixed today. Jesus loves you.
And He has done everything necessary by His perfect life and by His sacrificial death to make you right with God. And in doing that, He offers to you personal peace. He offers to you everlasting joy. He offers to you everything you've ever needed. Through His great love, He wants to deliver you from condemnation in hell and bring you into a relation in heaven with the living God. He made it all possible. But you have to leave yourself in your sin. And you have to repent. And you have to place your faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Would you do that now? Pray with me if you're ready to make Him your Savior. If you're ready to know the joy that I knew as a little boy, pray with me now. No magic prayer here, no mantra to give you. But if you're ready to cry out to God for salvation, you can pray with me. Dear God, in heaven, I am a sinner. And I know it. I know that my sin deserves punishment. And that I'm headed to hell. But I also know that I've heard a message of someone named Jesus, your son, who gave his life for me. And I believe that. And I trust that he was raised from the dead because that's the evidence that he's for real. And I believe him. So dear God, save me. Forgive me. Thank you that you love me. Others of you are here today and you have let the world and the flesh and the devil rob you of your joy. But you know now that this process has to start with you of refusing grumbling and disputing, embracing thanksgiving and praise. And through prayer today, God can begin to recover, restore your joy. Would you do that with Him? As God stirs your heart, would you stand? Would you respond? Would you come? There is strength within the sorrow.